Anyway, good morning. Good to see you all. All right. I've got a question for you. Um, it's always a bit risky doing sort of congregation participation, so I'm going to set the bar really low. Okay. All right. So what's the name of our church here? Fantastic. That's really good. <laughs> of course, the more important question is why are we called Beacon Church? And the reason is that our name, Beacon, says something about our purpose, our vision, our mission. We want to shine the transforming light of Jesus to everyone we meet across our community and across the world. And I'm sure we'd all agree that that is what we want to do. We want to see people drawn to the light. We want to see people come right into the light. To see people set free from Satan's grasp. To see the sick healed. To see lives transformed. And to see the kingdom of God come. That's what God's called us to do. But you know, sometimes I think we can get discouraged. I know I do. And I think that we, if not exactly forget our calling perhaps slide it over to the too difficult pile because the task seems so big. I mean, think about it for a moment. How many roughly are there here today? Maybe, I don't know, 100, 50, something like that. How many are there in Chertsey? How many residents of Chertsey? Anybody know? About 16 was what I saw, but yeah, something of that order, 16,000. So that's one of us for every 160 Chertsey residents. And of course, we're spread out over Ottershaw, Chertsey, Thorpe, Newhall, Adelstone, and other places as well, I'm sure. So how many people in all of these places put together? Well, I haven't looked it up, but let's say for the sake of argument, it's 50,000. That would mean that as a percentage, we're about 0.2% of the community that we represent. One of us for every 500 others. How can we have any meaningful influence when we are so few? And of course, we aren't just called to our local community, are we? Jesus called his disciples, and that includes us, to go into the whole world to proclaim the good news, to make disciples. He wants people from every tribe and tongue and nation to be with him in glory. And he won't come again until that mission has been accomplished. That's our calling. He calls us to be his light and to take his light into the whole world. But is that really possible? Really, I sit in my room sometimes at home and I wonder whether it is. I look at the scale of the challenge and I feel so weak, so helpless. Where do I or where do we even begin to start? The temptation, I think, to turn aside is a strong one. And yet, my aim this morning is to raise faith once again. Now, perhaps it doesn't sound like that. Perhaps it sounds like a bit of a depressing start to a sermon. But that is actually what I want to do now in September, at the beginning of a new term, a new season. I want us as a church to raise our eyes and to see the challenge for what it is. To acknowledge that the challenge is great. But still to say yes. Yes, we are going to keep pushing on. Yes, we are going to rise up a mighty army. Yes, we are going to make a difference. And it's true that in any rational human sense, the task is impossible. We are weak. Even the Bible describes us as jars of clay. But that's not the whole truth. 
With us, it is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. And he chooses the weak things of this world so that his glory will shine. So our response to the greatness of the challenge, even to the apparent impossibility of the challenge, isn't to give up or to be passive, but to believe God and to step out. You see, having faith in God, trusting God, it starts in the heart and the will, but it's tested and demonstrated through action. It causes us to live and to do things that we wouldn't otherwise have done, often things that seem counterintuitive, things that seem hopeless or impossible. But it's often at these precise times that we see God at work, and we see change, and we see breakthrough. And this is a pattern we see time and time again in the stories throughout the Bible. And this morning I want to take us to one of them. So we're going back into the Old Testament, and this time to the book of Judges. And this is a story that I'm sure is familiar to many of you, but I think it's a story that's very relevant for us today. It's the story of a man who was sent on an apparently impossible mission. But it's the story of a man who saw amazing success. It's the story of a man because, who, because of his weakness, had to let God act. And in, in God's hands, the impossible became possible. So this is the story of Gideon. So let's start with a little background. The story is set hundreds of years before there were kings in Israel. The Israelites had sinned against God and were living in a time of his judgment. There were people called the Midianites and they lived on the border of Israel. And each year at the time of harvest, they would come into the land and they would steal the harvest. And there were countless numbers of them. They were like locusts that came and devoured everything. And the Israelites were forced to live in caves and hidden places to try and stay safe. And now all the, um, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were told had come across the Jordan and they were camped right in the heart of the land. A mighty army, over 130,000 warriors. And the Israelites were in a desperate state again. And as they had done so often before, in their desperation, they cried out to God. And God heard their cries. And although they deserved their punishment, he acted as he had done so often before, with mercy, and he sent a deliverer. But his choice of deliverer didn't look very promising. You might have thought that against such a great army, God would have raised up a mighty man or a great king. But Gideon, God's choice, was found threshing wheat in a wine press, hiding and frightened. He was the least significant of all the people in his family. And his family were the least significant of all the tribes in the uh, families in the tribe. But it's to this man that an angel of God came and called mighty man of valor. Well, this mighty man certainly needed some persuading. And you recall how he laid fleeces before God and, and, and to ask, is it really God that's speaking to him? But God was gracious. And he gave Gideon the signs that he asked for. And Gideon trusted God. And we're told the spirit of God clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet and sent out messengers, and over 30,000 men answered the call. So that's the background. Let me tell the story of what happened next. And I've modified this for dramatic effect, but it's true to the biblical account in its important details. If you want to read it, not now, you can find it in Judges 6 to 8. You might want to do that later. So, 
Standing on the side of Mount Gilboa, Gideon gazed over the valley of Jezreel. The valley which sprawled before him northwards towards the hill of Morah was a sea of tents. Camped there like a mighty swarm of locusts was the Midianite army, more than 130,000 warriors. Earlier that morning, the Lord had said to Gideon that Israel's army of 32,000 was too big to fight the Midianites. God knew that Israel would give themselves the credit for the victory when it came if they fought with that number. So Gideon had told all those who were afraid to go back home, and over 22,000 of them went. With two-thirds of his army gone, Gideon had to take a few deep breaths to calm his own fear. Now they were down to 10,000 men, and they were outnumbered by over 10 to 1. But Gideon knew his God, and he knew his history. He knew that God was with them, and he knew that the Israelites had overcome such odds before. But God still thought the Israelite army was too big. So he gave instructions to Gideon to trim the number still further. And in obedience to the Lord's instruction, Gideon brought his small, thirsty army down to the spring of Harod. He called his servant Purah to his side and gave him what was probably the strangest command of his military career. He said, observe the men as they drink. Have every man who laps his water like a dog stand off to one side. Gideon started to supervise the selection, but because so few were being chosen, he uh, let Purah uh, finish the count, and meanwhile he climbed back up the mountain to watch and pray. It wasn't long before Purah emerged from the trees. So what's the total then, Gideon asked. 300, sir, said Purah. Gideon laughed to himself. 300. He looked back at the vast army camped in the valley and below and was quiet for a moment. That's less than I expected. Yes, sir, said Purah, but thankfully 300 doesn't reduce our numbers much. Gideon breathed deeply. No, Purah, he said. The 300 aren't the reductions. They are the army. Purah stood gazed for a moment, staring at Gideon. The 300 are the army? Gideon looked out at the Midianite army, then he took a look at Purah. Yes, he said, that's our army. Purah's eyes went wide and his face went pale. But that's not an army, he cried. That's how many should be guarding an army's luggage. Purah stepped up behind, beside Gideon together. They watched smoke columns rising from the thousands of cooking fires burning down in the valley. He shook his head and said, even if we were like the mighty men of old, 300 could not overcome 100,000. But we aren't mighty men. And there are more than 100,000 down there. Both were silent for a while. Then Gideon turns to Pur and asked, During the Exodus, how many men did it take to destroy Egypt and its army or part the Red Sea? Pur thought briefly. None, he replied. How many did it take to tear down Jericho's walls? None. How many did it take to feed two million of our people in the wilderness every day for 40 years? Yes, okay, I get your point. None again. In our people's history, Gideon said, the mightiest have not been the strong warriors. The mightiest have been those who trusted in the Lord and obeyed him, no matter how impossible things appeared. He has promised us the Midianite army will be defeated. He has chosen only 300 of us to do it. Our job is to obey. God will act. And when Midian is defeated, it will be clear to everyone 
who the victory belongs to. Then he looked at Pura and smiled. Maybe the Lord just needs us to look after the luggage. Pura didn't laugh. He only replied, should I dismiss the others then? And Gideon nodded. Later that night in the tiny camp, Gideon lay praying. Every plan to mobilize 300 against 100,000 seemed ludicrous. Suddenly he was aware of the presence of God. He sat up, his heart beating fast. And the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid, go first to the camp with your poor your servants, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So Pura nudged Pura and said, wake up, come on, we've got to go. Pura got up quickly, where are we going, he whispered. To the Midian camp, just you and me, the Lord has something he wants to show us. So they crept quietly towards the nearest part of the camp. It was dark and the clouds covered the moon. Creeping low in the tall grass, they managed to get close enough to a couple of soldiers to overhear what they were saying. I had a strange dream before being woken for duty tonight, said one. Go on, said the other, tell me about it. Well, this cake of barley came tumbling into our camp, crashed into the tent, turned it over and flattened it. The other guard looked at him alarmed and said, I know what that means. The cake can be none other than Gideon, the son of Joash. God has given us into his hand. Gideon and Pura looked at one another with the same stunned expression. And with renewed faith, Gideon and Pura roused their mini arm, uh, uh, rini, roused their mini army and launched a night attack. Each man had a trumpet and a clay jar, and in the clay jar was a torch. And following the instructions Gideon had given, they all went down into the camp, and when they got to the edge of the camp, they broke the jars, sounded the trumpets, and shouted out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! And this threw the, Gideonite, the Midianites into a panic, and they slaughtered each other in confusion. It was a rout. Not one of Gideon's 300 perished in the battle, and the entire Midianite army was destroyed. That's quite an incredible story. An amazing victory over impossible odds. So just in case you miss the numbers there, let me illustrate them for you. So there were over 300 in, there were 300 in Gideon's army, if you can call it an army, and there were 130,000 Midianites. So say there are 100 of you today, generously, all armed with swords. And imagine I'm going to fight you all on my own. It's a bit like that, except worse, because there are over four times as many of them. There have been 450 of you and just one of me. Or if you like, we can go back to the numbers I quoted at the beginning. There are about 100 of us. So it'd be like us facing an army made up of all the residents of Ottershaw, Chertsey, Adelson, Thorpe, and all of those all put together. Impossible odds. How could we possibly succeed? And yet Gideon did. The task seems impossible. But as the angel said to Mary, with God, nothing is impossible. See, we often just see with our human eyes. God wants us to look with eyes of faith. You remember the time that um, uh, Elijah, Elisha and his servant were in a city surrounded by an army that come to get them. And the servant saw the army and was afraid. But Elisha prayed, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And God opened the eyes of the servant. He saw a whole heavenly host encamped around them horses and chariots of fire. And he saw that those that were with them were way greater than those that were against them. So often to us, the mission looks impossible, but we aren't alone. This is God's mission. And his army is there and it is fighting for us. With God, nothing is impossible. With God, the mission is possible. And I think that's an obvious general lesson we can learn from the story of Gideon. 
But you know, I think we can make it even more directly applicable. And we can do that because I think that in Jesus, we see, in Gideon, we see a foretaste of Jesus. And if Gideon is an image of Jesus, then surely his army is an image of us. And in that case, their victory is a picture of the victory that is ours. So let's look then for a moment and see how we see Jesus foreshadowed by Gideon. Well, there are some fairly obvious background similarities, I think. We read of Gideon that he was the least important person uh, from the least important tribe. And Jesus, well, he was born a Jew in the time of the Roman Empire. And the Jews were a small and weak nation ruled by the Romans. And Jesus was born into a poor and insignificant family. He was a lowly person in a lowly nation. Gideon was humble. When God came to him, he was threshing a little bit of grain in a secret place. He was hiding. He was willing to get his hands dirty, to humble himself, to provide for his family. And Jesus, we're told, humbled himself and took the form of a servant. The Holy Spirit clothed Gideon. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus when he was baptized. Gideon had another name, and that was Jeroboam, which means he will take on and grapple with Baal, the false god of the people. And Jesus was the one who took on and grappled with Satan, the false god of the world. And these are interesting parallels, but for one of the strongest links, I want to take you back to one of the more mysterious elements of the story that we read. And remember that God said to Gideon, go down to the camp if you want to be encouraged. And there in the camp, he and his servant overheard two soldiers speaking. And one was describing a dream they had had. In this dream, a loaf of barley had come rolling down the mountain into the camp and flattened it. And the other soldier said, well, this can only mean one thing. This is Gideon. He's coming, and God is going to give victory over us. But isn't that rather strange? Why would he make that connection? What has a barley loaf got to do with Gideon? How could a loaf of bread coming down from the mountain into the camp crush it and destroy it? See, in the context of Gideon, the dream seems to make no sense at all. But if we move forward a thousand years, we start to see it in a different light. See, in John 6.51, Jesus tells us, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. In John 1, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus, who was in heaven, came right down into the camp. The living bread came down to earth. And note, too, this bread that came into the camp was a barley loaf, the poorest kind of bread. And when Jesus came, he didn't come as a king or a rich man. He didn't come in power. He was born in a stable and rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was like the barley loaf, poor and weak and humble. But this poor and weak and humble loaf destroyed the enemy. At the Last Supper with his disciples, um, Jesus took bread. And he said to them, this is my body which is broken for you. And shortly afterwards, Jesus' tortured and broken body was nailed to a cross. There in the eyes of the world, he was defeated. But Jesus' cry, it is finished, wasn't a cry of defeat. But it was a cry of victory. He had completed the work he had come to do. As Jesus, the Son of God, died, Satan was defeated. As Jesus, the bread of heaven, was broken, the enemy was crushed. The loaf of barley bread that that the soldier saw in his dream rolling down the mountain and destroying the enemy 
actually only bore an incidental resemblance to Gideon. It was true for a passing moment in history. But what that soldier really saw was a prophetic image of the true bread of heaven that was going to come down and destroy Satan and all his works. So at the center of this story, we see Jesus. Jesus, the humble servant, who through his obedience to death on the cross, defeated the power of sin and death. We see Jesus, the bread of heaven, who won the ultimate victory. We see God at work using the apparently weak to destroy the apparently strong. This was a victory that was complete and total and forever. And on this hangs everything else. This is right at the centre of our hope and our faith. But if in this story we see that Gideon was an image of Christ that was to come, what can we say of his army? This little band of 300 men, what significance do they have for us? Well, as I said earlier, it seems apparent to me that if Gideon represents Jesus, then the group of men that followed Gideon into battle would rep- represents those who would one day follow Christ. First the apostles and then the church that followed. In other words, you and me. We are the army of God. And clearly there's loads that we could say about Jesus, our commander in the battle, and we could talk a lot about the mechanics of how we operate as an army, but that's not really my purpose today. What I really want to do is to encourage each of us to look up and to see the task that is before us. There is a whole world out there that needs Jesus, from Chertsey to Chattisgarh, from Adelstone to Adelaide. And I want us to embrace that mission, not to be overwhelmed, but to be excited, to be reminded of the story of Gideon, and remember that with God, all things are possible. And I want us to rise with renewed faith. We are being called something that is big, something that is world-changing. God wants to partner with us in bringing his kingdom. And we're already doing that. Can we do more? Let's not give up in doing good, but let's keep pressing on. Now, I'm not focusing, as I say, on the mechanics, the nuts and bolts of us being an army, but I do want to pick up on some aspects of the story that we've looked at that are relevant to us as we start to try and think bigger. And the first key thing I want us to remember is that Gideon's army followed the lead of Gideon. They didn't just do their own thing. They did what Gideon commanded, and they were coordinated. They kept their eyes fixed on Gideon, and they acted at his command. And that's a basic but important thing for us to be reminded of. See, I think it's too easy sometimes to respond to God's call in our lives, but then get to get, to get caught up in the activity of life. And that can even include the specific activities that God has called us to. It's too easy to take our eyes off Jesus, and we just can't afford to do that. We can't be, expect to be victorious if we do that. Think of athletes running the 100 metres. From the time they're on the blocks to the time they finish across the, the, the finish line, Their eyes are locked on where they're going. They don't look across at the crowd. They don't look to see how their competitors are doing. They look straight ahead. And we must do the same. In Hebrews, we're encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus. And for some of us, that doesn't come that naturally. And of course, we have an enemy whose goal is to distract us. So we need to practice the discipline of continually turning back and looking to him. We must remember the battle is his. 
The glory of the victory is his. The strategy and the tactics we employ are his. The strength of the fight comes from him. We used to sing a song, Jesus be the centre. Be my light, be my source, my hope, my fire, uh, the fire in my heart, the wind in my sail, the reason that I live. And that's a really good prayer. If we're going to see the kingdom of God come, we must keep our eyes fixed on our leader and commander. We'll only see the kingdom of God advance as we reflect the light of Jesus. And we'll only do that as we are looking at him. So let's keep Jesus in the center of our vision. Second, I want us to remember what Gideon's army carried into battle and what they didn't carry. So first off, (coughs) they didn't carry any weapons. At least not weapons that anyone would recognize as such. And nor do we. Paul reminded us that our weapons are not of this world. Jesus told his disciples to put their swords away. That's not how the battle would be fought and won. We don't have any weapons that the world might regard as threatening. We don't control the newspapers or the media outlets or the courts. We don't have large reserves of money or, the, or, or many powerful and influential people or leaders. As we s- seek to bring change in our society and culture, these are things we might wish we had. And I'm not saying we shouldn't seek to bring influence in those areas when we can and when we have the opportunity, but these aren't our weapons. And I know not having them might leave us feeling weak and vulnerable, but how do you think Gideon's army felt? This is the way that God works. He uses the weak to confound the strong, so the glory always goes to him. So Gideon's army went into the fight without weapons, but they did carry something. They carried clay jars with a light inside. I think that's really interesting. Doesn't it bring to mind some verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 4? The God who said, Out of the darkness the light shall shine, is the same God who has made his light shine in our hearts to bring us the knowledge of God's glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Yet we who have this spiritual treasure are like common clay pots in order to show that the supreme power belongs not to us, but to God. The Gideon's army was reduced to a mere handful and they were sent to the battle with just a light inside a clay pot. Why? so the supreme power would be seen to belong to God and not to them. And exactly the same is true of us. We're likened to clay pots, common, cheap, weak. So the victory, when it comes, will be seen to be God's victory and the glory will go to him. We are weak. Paul tells us that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God stronger than man's strength. Brothers, consider the time of your calling Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the weak things of the world. uh, To shame the wise, sorry. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Last week, Nathan uh, reminded us of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, those of you who are there. A little boy offered his picnic of a few loaves and fishes. How inadequate an offering was that? But God used it to feed the people with more than they could eat. And Nathan asked us, what is it that we might bring? We don't have weapons the world would regard as powerful, but God has given us gifts that we can use in his servant service. What are they? Will you use them? They might seem small and insignificant to you, 
But that is the point. These are precisely the gifts that God wants you to use. So don't bury what you have, but bring it out. Offer it to God. In God's hands, what we have is more than enough. The disciples cleared up a huge surplus after everyone had eaten their fill. Don't underestimate the power of the gifts that you have when used in God's service. Anne had a picture a few weeks ago about dusting off the gifts that we put on a shelf and are gathering dust. We really need to do that to serve each other, to serve our community, to serve the world. Gideon's army went down into the enemy's camp and when the trumpets sounded, they broke their pots and the light shone out and the enemy was scattered. I think you could argue that even this is an image of Christ. God himself took on flesh and lived in human weakness, the treasure of God concealed in a human vessel. But on the cross, that vessel was broken and the light shone out and the enemy was scattered. But I want to apply that to ourselves. Because like Christ, we're called to lay down our lives. This weak clay pot has to be put down. We can't achieve anything in our own strength. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to put down our pride. Put down our desire for self-glorification. We need to die to self. Let our pot be broken. And then the light of the treasure that is within us can shine out. And that's how the battle will be won. By the transforming light of Jesus being shone into the world. Jesus has put this light in us and he's told us don't hide it, but let it shine out. Let it shine here in Chertsey. Let it shine in Adelstone and to the ends of the earth. Let it shine at school, in the workplace, amongst your friends and your family. The darkness is great, but the light is greater. Yes, the mission we've been called to is big, but we have a God who is bigger. Yes, we are weak, but he is strong. With us, it is impossible, but with him, all things are possible. We're called Beacon Church. Let's be a beacon. Let's continue to take, uh, to, to, to take the light of the glory of God out into this dark world. And let's see it do its transforming work. Lift your eyes. Expand your vision. Let faith arise. And let's see God work through us.